0: This is the Islamic History Podcast, season 3, episode 4, powered by islamiclearningmaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers and add a little bit of spices and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. First and foremost, I want to give you an explanation about why we missed an episode last week. Well, yes, a lot of things just happened to come up at the same time. Just life got in the way. First, I had to deliver a khutbah at Georgia Tech MSA, and I had to take uh, several days out of my week to prepare for that. And then the weekend came, and I realized I hadn't spent much time with my wife and kids, and I really needed to take some time off and be a family guy for a little while and so that's what I did I took a couple of weekends weekends off actually to spend some time with my children and my wife and some some, uh, good quality time that stuff is kind of necessary in this day and age so that's my excuse I do apologize if I interrupted your listening flow or stream but inshallah hopefully we'll get back on track now now this episode that you're going to listen to today is broken up into three acts and I do this in order to make the story easier to follow for you that is so between each act, there will be a short clip of the Adhan in Mecca to help the transition along so you know when things are about to change a little bit. I I hope it won't be too jarring and give me your feedback if you find that it's too distracting. Let me know, inshallah. Inshallah, stay tuned after the show for more insight into the story. I do like doing that, providing you some background when I can't say everything during the show. And uh, last but not least, certainly, please continue to support this podcast by making a pledge at Patreon. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Go to patreon.com slash History and make a pledge because this show is 100% listener supported. And so with that, let's get into the show. This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 4, Caliphs and Kings. Dimashqi, At-Tasiatu Arba'in, Damascus, 49 AH Will the people accept this? Muawiyah asked. It's not without precedence, replied Mughirah ibn Shu'bah, the governor of Kufa. Not too long ago, Muawiyah had considered dismissing Mughirah. He was getting older, was always complaining of fatigue, and there were whispers that he wanted to resign. But this idea he brought to Muawiyah was intriguing. Was it possible? Could it be done? Muawiyah would not have any problem with this plan in either Syria or Egypt. Both provinces had once been part of the Eastern Roman Empire and were used to the idea. Furthermore, Muawiyah was beloved in Syria and the people there would go along with anything he said. But the rest of the empire might not follow so easily. Iraq would definitely take some work. Fortunately, he had Mughida in Kufa and Ziyad ibn Abihi in Basra. Between the two of them, they should be able to bring Iraq along. But there may be resistance in Arabia, the spiritual center of the empire and the birthplace of Islam. The Arabian Peninsula was still home to several companions and their children. There was Hassan and Hussein, the sons of Ali, also Abdullah ibn Umar, Abdullah ibn Zubair, Abdullah ibn Abbas, and many others. In order for Muawiyah to make this plan work, he had to talk quietly, move slowly, and act wisely. He wrote out a letter and handed it to Murida with orders to pass it on to Ziyad ibn Abihi. Mu'awiyah would need both men to begin working on this immediately. A few weeks later, he received Ziad's response. Ziad said he was in favor of the idea but agreed they must be careful. Amir al-Mu'minin was in good health, he wrote, and they still had many years to put their plan into action. Ziad promised to talk with the nobles and chiefs of Basra. He had a certain influence over them and was sure he could get them to go along with the idea. Mu'awiyah knew Ziyad's influence was just another word for intimidation. The letter cautioned Mu'awiyah about his son's reputation. Perhaps Amir al-Mu'mineen should send the young man on a few military expeditions to prove his strength and his courage. Muawiyah rolled up the parchment and thought about his governor's advice. It was true, his son was spoiled and had never tasted any true hardships. Perhaps it was time to send him to the Romans. Constantinia at and Wal-Arba'een Constantinople, 49 AH The ship rocked violently as Yazid ibn Muawiyah approached the walls of Constantinople. This was the most famous and magnificent city in the world. If Yazid could capture it for his father, he would be revered like the old warriors he'd heard so many stories about. But as the Muslim fleet drew closer to the city, the prospects of victory looked dim. Though inexperienced in battle, Yazid realized this was a near-impossible task. Constantinople was built on a small peninsula jutting into the Bosporus Strait, separating Europe from Asia. Surrounded by waters on three sides, a naval assault was the only option. The outer walls were the biggest Yazid had ever seen. Some of the ramparts were over 100 feet high. Behind the outer walls, there was a second ring of walls just as formidable as the first. The Muslims would have to breach both sets of walls before facing the full might of the Roman military. Yazid would have to rely on the experience of the men under his command. Many of them were much older than he was and had amazing pedigrees. The most important figure was Abu Ayyub al Ansari. Abu Ayyub was an old man, but everyone treated him with great respect. He was among the first Ansars to accept Islam and among those who invited Prophet Muhammad to Medina. No one actually expected Abu Ayyub to participate in the fighting, but they hoped Allah's blessings would follow the old Sahaba to Constantinople and bring the Muslims victory. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari was the oldest companion in Yazid's force, but he wasn't the only one. His command included illustrious names such as Ibn Abbas, Ibn Umar, and Ibn Zubair. "'Incoming!' someone yelled. The Romans welcomed the Muslims with catapults and arrows. Large boulders soared over the high stone walls and splashed harmlessly into the sea behind the Muslim fleet. "'That was just to set that aim,' said the Yazid's captain. "'The next volley is going to bite!' Sure enough, another wave of boulders flew through the air and crashed in and amongst the Muslim ships. Most missed, but a few hit their marks." They blasted holes into the wooden ships and pulverized the unfortunate soldiers below deck. The captain ordered his men to row faster. The closer they got to the walls, the less effective the catapults would be. Most of the fleet made it safely to the shores of Constantinople. Yazid held his shield over his head and led a mad dash across the beach as the Romans showered them with arrows. Yazid and his soldiers pressed tightly against the high stone walls, For now, they were safe from arrows and somewhat safe from stones. Yazid's sappers began hastily drilling into the side of the wall. But the Romans had been defending Constantinople for centuries. They had more defensive tools than arrows and stones. One of the sappers screamed in agony as his clothes went up in flames. Yazid glanced up at the wall and saw a strange white liquid creeping down the sides. Greek fire a devilish concoction the Romans had that allowed them to literally pour fire on their enemies. Yazid shook his head. No wonder Constantinople had not been captured in over four centuries. Damascus, Khumsuna Sanatun hijriya. Damascus, 50 AH Within a year, things were beginning to look good for Muawiyah. In Kufa, Murida ibn Shabba had convinced most of the chiefs to accept Muawiyah's plan. Mughida was a Sahaba and for the most part enjoyed a good relationship with the people of Kufa. In Basra, Ziyad ibn Abihi also reported success. The people of Iraq offered very little resistance when he encouraged them to accept Yazid. Mughida died later that year and Ziyad ibn Abihi became the governor of Kufa and Basra. By this time, all of Iraq had professed their acceptance of Muawiyah's plan. In Damascus, Muawiyah was doing his part as well. He ordered an attack on Constantinople and appointed his son as the overall commander. The young man had never been in battle, but Muawiyah made sure to include several experienced veterans. The invasion was an utter failure. Yazid's forces suffered heavy losses and never even breached the outer walls. Old Abu Ayyub al Ansari was one of the many casualties of that battle and had been buried beneath the ramparts of the city. But it wasn't a complete loss. It didn't help boost his son's reputation. Muawiyah had a more difficult time convincing Yazid to change his ways. His son grew up wealthy and privileged in a cosmopolitan city with a Christian mother. Except for his pilgrimage to Arabia, Yazid knew nothing of the harsh desert life Muawiyah grew up in. Yazid loved hunting and poetry and expensive trips. He attended parties with alcohol and music and singing girls. He enjoyed the finer things of life, such as silk and rich food. Muawiyah convinced Yazid to cut back on these activities, but he never fully gave them up. Muawiyah was still concerned about Arabia. In Syria, they loved him. In Iraq, they were afraid of Ziyad ibn Abihi. But things were different in the Hijaz. The Hijazis were much more religious and generally did not cause problems for Muawiyah. But he knew they did not love him there. They did not accept Muawiyah because he deserved to be caliph. They accepted him because there was no other choice. The Hijazis did not fear their leaders like the Iraqis and did not blindly follow them like the Syrians. As the custodians of the Ka'aba and the Fountainhead of Islam, They expected to have a say in who would be the next caliph. Muawiyah did not expect the Hijazis to rise up in revolt. They did not have the manpower nor the inclination to do such a thing. But he could expect resistance from them. They had made it clear that Shura should be utilized to choose Muawiyah's successor. Muawiyah did not care for Shura. Engaging in consultation and discussion was great for making day-to-day decisions, But it was not a good way to choose the leader. The Arabs may have had good intentions, but Mu'ami was convinced that monarchies were more stable. Besides, everyone else was doing it. The Romans, the Persians, the Abyssinians, they all had monarchies and it seemed to work well for them. Why should the Arabs be any different? There was nothing in the Quran forbidding a monarchy. The Prophet did not prohibit it, so why did the Muslims act like the only way to choose a leader was with shura? In fact, none of the previous caliphs were chosen by shura. The closest was Uthman, and they saw how that turned out. No, Mawia thought, shaking his head. The Arabs needed a king. They could not handle choosing their own leader. They may not agree with him now, but they'd thank him later. Allah. شمال أفريقيا Khamsuna Sanatu North Africa, 50 A.H. Ever since the days of Omar ibn al Khattab, the Muslim presence in North Africa was limited to Egypt. There had been a few attempts to expand this territory, but nothing of lasting significance. Caliph Othman's Egyptian governor, ibn Abi Sahar, led a raid into Tripolitania in modern day Libya. This was a successful raid that brought huge plunder back to Egypt. But Ibn Abi Sahra did not leave a garrison in Libya and the Romans moved back in after he left. After that, the Muslim Empire was racked with internal conflict and civil war and there were no further attempts at North African expansion. But once stability returned, Mu'awiyah began launching raids into the lands west of Egypt again. The difference was that by this time, Roman influence had waned considerably. While the Eastern Roman Empire was still the nominal ruler over much of North Africa, the native Berbers and the local climate would prove to be bigger threats for the Muslims. The distance between Egypt and the Atlantic coast of Morocco is about 2,000 miles. The Sahara Desert makes up 75% of that area. Most of the people in this area live in the relatively cool and fertile northern regions along the Mediterranean coast. In Algeria and Morocco, the coast is separated from the Sahara by the Atlas Mountains. Some of the valleys within the Atlas Mountains trap moisture, leading to very fertile pockets. These pockets have allowed the growth of isolated towns and abundant agriculture such as olives, citrus fruits, figs, and dates. This fertile coast was home to Carthage, one of the greatest ancient civilizations. Carthage was founded as a Phoenician colony between 846 and 813 BC in northern Tunisia. The Phoenicians established many settlements and colonies throughout the Mediterranean. Carthage was an exception in that it flourished and outgrew its mother nation. Eventually, Carthage became an independent city and then a vast empire in its own right. The most famous Carthaginian was Hannibal the Conqueror who waged a bitter war against the Romans. Hannibal is most famous for taking an army, including 30 war elephants, from modern-day Spain across the Alps then south into Italy to invade Rome. Though he occupied northern Italy for 15 years, Hannibal was never able to conquer Rome itself. Problems back in Carthage eventually forced Hannibal to return to North Africa and that allowed the Romans to reassert themselves. The tide slowly turned and by 146 BC, Rome had sacked and burned Carthage to the ground. After killing or enslaving most of the inhabitants, the Romans rebuilt the city and Carthage would be their North African capital for centuries. Carthage still exists today but is little more than a village suburb of the Tunisian capital of Tunis. Tunis, Khomsuna Sanatu Tunisia, 50 A.H. Muawiyah appointed a man named Oqba ibn Nafih al Fihri as the sub governor of Ifriqiya. Egypt was the main province and Ifriqiya was really a district under its jurisdiction. Therefore, Uqba ibn Nafi was subordinate to the Egyptian governor. Uqba was from the Fihra sub of the Quraysh and was born in Mecca in the same year that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, migrated to Medina. He first accompanied his uncle, Amr ibn al-As, on some of his early expeditions into Libya during the caliphate of Amr ibn al-Khattab. During these early raids, Uqba had a chance to meet and interact with the native Berber people. Some of these Berbers accepted Islam and would become a vital part of Uqba's push across the continent in later years. Ifriqiya was considered frontier territory and it is unlikely the Arabs understood its vastness. This combined with the rough terrain and rough people contributed to the slow pace of Muslim expansion across North Africa. In 50 AH or 670 CE, Uqba ibn Nafi led his first invasion into what is now Tunisia. The Roman military was fairly weak and Uqba had little trouble defeating them. However, the threat of Roman reprisals was imminent and Egypt was too far away to provide support. To alleviate this threat, Uqba established the first Muslim garrison in North Africa outside of Egypt. This garrison was named Cairoan and would grow to become one of the most famous Muslim cities in the world. Cairoan was established about 80 miles south of Carthage and 50 miles from the nearest coast. Uqba ibn Nafi supervised the clearing of the area and the building of the first masjid, the government house, and a few plots for future residents. Like most of the early Muslim garrisons, Cairoan was used as a staging ground for further expansion. Kairouan would grow into a major spiritual center for Islamic studies, particularly for the Maliki branch of Sunni Islamic jurisprudence. It even rivaled Baghdad and Medina as a city of Islamic scholarship. In the 9th century, it became known as a leading center for the study of sciences, arts, medicine, and mathematics. Perhaps it was Kairouan's isolation and distance from the rest of the Muslim world that attracted so many people. Or perhaps it was the city's fertile soils and abundant agriculture. Or perhaps it was the canals Okba ibn Nafi constructed that brought water from the Mams River. Whatever it was, Kardawan flourished and in many ways surpassed the other Muslim garrisons of its day. Of all the early Muslim garrisons that eventually became cities, Kardawan is the only one that still exists as an independent city in its original location. The original Basra is now a small village dwarfed by the modern metropolis. The original Kufa has been engulfed by the modern city of Najaf. The original Fustat is just a neighborhood within the modern capital of Cairo. The Muslim geographer Muhammad al idrisi described the city as follows. Cairoan is the mother of cities and capital of the land. It is the greatest city in the Islamic West, the most populated, prosperous, and thriving with the most perfect buildings. The most important building in Kairawan is the masjid established by Okba ibn Nafi. When he first ordered its construction, it was just a few simple mud brick walls. But over the years, it has come to symbolize North African architecture and became the model for all other mosques built in the West. The Great Mosque, or Jamia-Uqba, covers an area over 96,800 square feet. The Great Minaret, completed in 125 AH, or 724 CE, is over 100 feet tall. Jamia-Uqba is the oldest mosque in North Africa and one of the oldest existing Islamic buildings in the world. Al-Qairawan, Khamsata wa Sanatul Kairouan, 55 AH After establishing Kairouan, Uqba ibn Nafi wanted to continue his push to the Atlantic. Though he was governor of Ifriqiya, he was a warrior at heart. He was restless sitting in Kairouan and anxious to subdue the Berbers of North Africa. This desire to fight would be his undoing. Despite being a successful warrior and governor, he was not independent. Since Ifriqiya was under Egypt's jurisdiction, the governor of Egypt was Uqba's boss. In 55 AH, the governor of Egypt dismissed Uqba as governor. Then Uqba and the new governor of Ifriqiya disagreed about how to deal with the Berbers. Most Berbers had not yet accepted Islam and saw the Muslims as foreign invaders. Uqba favored a stronger militant approach. He wanted to pursue an aggressive campaign against these non-Muslim Berber tribes. The governor of Ifriqiya did not agree and preferred to use diplomacy with the Berbers. Ultimately, the governor prevailed and Okba ibn Nafi was removed from all military command. Some reports even state the governor arrested Okba and imprisoned him for years. Hence, within five years of the establishment of Kairouan, the Muslim expansion to the west came to another sudden halt. This lull in activity would prove costly for the Muslims. Even though the Romans were no longer a threat, it gave the Berbers time to organize and fill the power vacuum. With the Romans on the decline, the scattered Berber tribes saw an opportunity to unite and combine their strengths. Al-Barbar, the Berbers. The word Berber comes from the Greek word barbarous, meaning foreign or barbarian. The Berbers did not call themselves Berbers and did not consider themselves either foreign or barbarian. Instead, they called themselves Al-Mazir, meaning free men. But since the term Berber is more common, that is what we'll use going forward. The indigenous Berbers were the original inhabitants of the modern nations of Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Berbers are even found in the Canary Islands off the western coast of North Africa. The Berber language is related to ancient Egyptian, making it part of the Afro-Asiatic family of languages. This family includes, among others, Arabic, Hebrew, Amharic, Somali, and Aramaic. However, due to the traditionally isolated nature of most Berber tribes, the Berber language is broken into hundreds of individual dialects. Furthermore, there is no Berber alphabet and, until recently, the language had never been written down. Hence, there is no standard form of Berber like there is a standard Arabic or a standard English. Physically, the Berber people look very similar to most Arabs. However, the Berber culture is a fusion of African and Mediterranean life. Today, most Berbers are actually Arabs and speak Arabic as their first language. A few isolated communities in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco still speak the original Berber language, but even in these areas, Islam is the dominant force. Allah Allah. Akbar Allah. Allah. Al-Kufa, 3.5 Sonata Hajriya Kufa, 53 AH Ziad watched the executioner prepare his tools. Of all the times Ziad has sentenced people to death, he never actually saw this part of the process. The executioner began by polishing his sword. He rubbed a portion of the blade against a rough stone. Then he poured water over it, wiped it clean, and repeated the process. Doing this removed the stains from the last beheading. When the executioner was satisfied, he switched to another stone, this one less coarse than the first. This second stone was meant to smooth out the blade and remove any kinks or dents. Ziad ibn Abihi marveled at the man's care and attention to detail. The executioner was meticulous, peering down the side of the blade, running his thumb along its edge, and muttering when he found a nick in the steel. When the sword was sharp enough, the executioner hung it on a nearby branch to dry. Then he took a long wooden pole and adjusted the iron tongs and rods baking in a nearby furnace. Next to the furnace was an earthen bowl which Ziyad knew was meant to catch the blood and amputated body parts. Ziad had been governor of Iraq for almost five years by now. He had first subdued Basra and after Marida ibn Shu'ba died, Kufa as well. Muawiyah had also given him Oman and Bahrain. Both provinces were flourishing and doing very well. Ziyad was proud of his accomplishments. He had extinguished rebellion, destroyed corruption, and monopolized justice. He had worked to subdue Iraq for Muawiyah. He had even convinced the Iraqis to accept Yazid as Muawiyah's successor. Ziyad had relaxed some of his stricter policies, hoping this show of mercy would help turn the tide in Yazid's favor. The nobles and chiefs of both cities declared their willingness to accept Yazid, but he knew it was not sincere. The Iraqis hated the Umayyads. If given half the chance, they would welcome Ali's son Hussein in an instant. The Hijazis weren't much better. They did not care for Muawiyah either had no shortage of prominent Sahaba they would rather see in charge, which was why Ziyad had petitioned Muawiyah to make him governor of Arabia as well. I have seized Iraq for you with my left hand, he wrote to Muawiyah, while my right hand is empty. Therefore, fill it with the hijaz. Muawiyah had agreed, sort of. Instead of the entire peninsula, he gave Ziad Yamama in Central Arabia. Most likely, this was a trial run to see how Ziad would do. Almost immediately, there was an outcry. Ziyad couldn't believe when he heard the people of Arabia did not want him. Hadn't they heard how well Iraq was doing? Didn't they hear that he was going easy on the people now? Then he received startling news. Several Hijazis had gone to Ibn Umar about Ziyad taking over. They wanted him to talk Muawiyah into changing his mind or, if it came to it, lead a resistance movement against Ziyad. But Ibn Umar did neither. Instead, He led the group to the Ka'aba in Mecca and prayed for deliverance from Ziad. At first, Ziad was amused when he heard that Ibn Omar's prayers were in vain. It was obvious whose side Allah was on. But a few days after that incident, Ziad noticed a strange blotch on his finger, a slight discoloration that he had never noticed before. He ignored it for a while, but it continued to grow and change colors. Soon, it covered his entire finger, was spreading towards a second finger and had taken on a purple-blackish hue. His fingers had a foul odor and periodically sent sharp pains up his arm. Ziad kept it quiet, but shared his concerns with one of his judges. Ziad confessed he considered amputating his hand. "'If you cut off your hand,' the judge said, Your body will be scarred, your heart will be saddened, and death will come for you one day anyway. "'So, what is your advice?' asked Ziad. "'It's best to leave it alone and not mutilate yourself out of fear of meeting your lord. "'Either the sickness will spread and you will die, which is inevitable for all of us, "'or it may stop and things will return to normal.' Ziad took the old man's advice, hoping the sickness would recede. It did not. Before long, his hand was a black and shriveled claw, and he could see it beginning to spread beyond his wrist. It was long before the word got out, and people were saying his hand had the plague. Ziad noticed people went to great lengths to avoid him and only spoke to him from a safe distance. Finally, Ziad decided the old judge was a fool and it was time to take decisive action. He would amputate his hand before this plague got any worse. And now, he sat watching his executioner shine the sword until it gleamed. The cauterizing tools in the furnace were red hot. Ziad tried to convince himself it wouldn't be that bad. How many people did he send to the same man to have their hands and heads removed? It will be over quickly, he thought as the executioner strapped his arm to a stone pillar and placed the bowl under his hand. Ziad looked into the bowl and saw dried blood and small bone chips. He imagined his black hand lying there and his arm a bloody stump. Wait, wait, he yelled as the executioner approached. The man froze, the sword held high above his head, a confused look on his face. I, I can't do this, said Ziad. He used his good hand to undo the straps and shook his arm free. He left the bewildered executioner and headed straight for the mosque. There he prayed to the same god as Ibn Omar. For the first time in five years, Ziyad began to doubt if Allah really was on his side. Al Madina Hijriya, Medina fifty six AH Muawi was uncomfortable in the hot tent. Even though he couldn't see the old woman behind the screen, her voice cut him like a knife. Where was your forbearance towards Hujud ibn Adi? Aisha asked sharply. Where was the patience of Abu Sufyan? It vanished when good people like you abandoned me, said Muawiyah gently, and hard people like Ziyad ibn Abihi counseled me. Muawiyah grimaced at the thought of his former governor, now dead almost three years. Muawiyah had a hard time finding someone to replace him. He had already gone through five different governors between Kufa and Basra. Muawiyah was never comfortable with Ziad's harsh methods, but the man brought results. Ziad was tough and uncompromising and always got the job done. That stubborn fool would not even amputate his hand when it caught the plague. The men Muawiyah appointed to replace Ziad had all been disappointments. That is, until he met with Ziad's son, al By Allah, exclaimed Aisha, interrupting his thoughts. If it weren't that fighting you would cause more problems, things would have been very different after you killed Hujar ibn Adi. I knew him and he was an obedient and dutiful Muslim. Maawiyah shifted uneasily. He did not like how casually she threatened him. But Aisha had been dealing with powerful men all her life. From her husband, the prophet, to her father, Abu Bakr, and even going to battle with Ali ibn Abi Talib. Muawiyah knew he was nothing compared to them. There are many people who would kill you for what you did to Hujr, she continued boldly. But I am safe with you, right? He asked with a sheepish smile. There was nothing he could do. He couldn't touch her, he couldn't threaten her, he couldn't arrest her. Aren't you afraid of Allah's wrath for killing Hujr and his companions? I did not kill him, Muawiyah responded. Those people who signed Ziyad's statement, they're the ones who killed him. Muawiyah left Aisha's tent, humiliated and depressed. He had come to Arabia for two reasons. To make Umrah the minor pilgrimage to Mecca and convince the Hijazis to accept his son. The trip to Mecca went perfectly. He saw old friends and family and reconnected with the city of his birth. But the people in Medina were different. They did not like his regime, they did not like his city, and they did not like his son. Aisha's words had confirmed what he always suspected. There was a lot of pent-up anger in Arabia ever since the death of Uthman. The slightest jolt might cause an eruption. That's why these meetings with the influential Sahaba in Medina were so crucial. He just needed to get one of them to accept Yazid as his successor. If one of them would accept Yazid, he believed the others would follow. The first to meet with him was the son of his former rival, Hussein ibn Ali. My cousin, said Muawiyah, everyone has accepted Yazid except for five people from the Quraysh. And I hear you are their leader. Why won't you accept my son? You you heard I'm their leader? Hussein asked. Of course you are, said Muawiyah, trying to read Hussein, who looked so much like his grandfather. Then call them all here. If the people accept Yazid, then I'll accept him also. You would do that, he asked hopefully. Absolutely. But until that happens, don't accuse me of anything. Okay, said Muawiyah, ignoring Hussein's impudence. I'll talk to them. But let's keep this conversation secret for now. Hussein agreed, then took his leave. Next, Muawiyah summoned Ibn Zubair and had a similar conversation. But when Muawiyah asked him to keep their meeting secret, Ibn Zubair was coy. We are in the sanctuary of Allah Almighty, replied Ibn Zubair. Any promise I make here is very serious. So... Pardon me if I decline. Ma'awiyah glared at Ibn Zubair as he departed. This one is dangerous, he thought to himself. Dangerous and ambitious. Ma'awiyah would go on to meet with Ibn Omar and Abdurrahman ibn Abi Bakr. Neither agreed to give him the support he needed. Just vague promises to accept whatever the people accepted. He returned to Damascus dejected and uneasy. His trip to Arabia was fruitless and his son would enjoy only nominal support, if even that. Mu'awi advised his son Yazid on how to deal with the four men he met in Medina. Ibn Almar is too religious to be a threat, so you don't have to worry about him. Abdurrahman ibn Abi Bakr will do whatever the others do. The Iraqis, they will pressure Hussein ibn Ali to rebel against you and he's going to listen to them. But they will fail him just like they failed his father and his brother. If he does rebel, fight him, but go easy on him and pardon him afterwards. He is the prophet's grandson, after all, and uh, the people love him. Then he paused for a while before continuing. The one you got to worry about is Ibn Zubayr. He is like a crouching lion or a heaving reptile or a cunning fox. He will try to destroy you at the first opportunity. When he does that, you must fight him and you must defeat him and you must tear him to pieces. For a brief moment, Mu'awiyah considered telling his son about the agreement he'd made with Hussein's older brother, Hassan ibn Ali. Then the moment passed. Hassan ibn Ali had been dead for many years, so as far as Mu'awiyah was concerned, that agreement was null and void. This was for the best, he told himself. The Arabs needed stability. They needed a king. They needed the Umayyads. Yazid is a good man, Muawiyah thought. He will make a good caliph. Muawiyah watched his son try on a new silk garment his mother had given him. Muawiyah sighed and turned away. Inshallah, he thought, if Allah wills, Yazid will make a good caliph. alhamdulillah i hope you found that interesting educational and engaging let's get into some of the uh people that we that we discussed in today's episode primarily first and foremost the star of the show mu'awiyah ibn Abi sufyan he is often criticized and perhaps rightfully so for turning the caliphate into a monarchy and as you can tell from hopefully the show that he had kind of lost confidence in the shura and the shura is a consultative council which is a, a sort of a quasi-democratic body in islam sort of anyway he had kind of lost lost confidence in that and he saw all the problems that it led to between the caliphate of his cousin uthman ibn Affan and then his rival ali ibn Abi talib he kind of saw that this whole um let's try this whole quasi-democratic process wasn't really working and he didn't like it and he was living in an era where everyone else was doing monarchies and had kings and stuff and so he thought that the Muslims would would benefit from that and perhaps he also I think had some aspirations to make his clan the Banu Umayyah, the dominant clan in the Muslim world and so he did what he felt he needed to do and he thought he was doing a good thing he does not know that his actions are going to lead to so many problems later on Allah knows best that if he didn't know what was going to happen from his actions would he have still followed that same path who knows but Definitely, the decisions that he made continue to affect us even to today. It is amazing. Anyway, the next thing I want to talk about, we we talk now about Muawiyah. I want to speak a little bit about Akbar ibn Nafi, who was the conqueror of much of North Africa. His story is not over. We only briefly got into it now, but his story is really exciting, really amazing. But during the context that we're in right now, he doesn't play a big role. He does. Uh, Established the city of Kairawan which we of course we spoke about that already but then he gets thrown into prison and he kind of disappears for a few years but he comes back with a bang and when he comes back and uh, hopefully uh, maybe two or three episodes inshallah hopefully we'll get into a little bit more of his um, story His very amazing story all the battles he had with the Berbers and I hope I can do it justice inshallah we, we don't I don't know we don't really talk we haven't really talked about him much but we will definitely come back to him. This guy was a pure warrior, kind of in the vein of Khalid Ibn Walid. He was just one of those guys that Allah just made this man to fight. <laughs> this guy just made to fight. Uqba ibn Nafi was just a warrior, plain and simple. Now, uh two more people I want to speak about are Hassan, I'm sorry, not Hassan. Hussein Ibn Ali and Ibn Zubair ibn Zubair's full name is really abdullah ibn Zubair, but there's so many abdullah's abdullah ibn Omar, abdullah ibn abbas abdullah ibn Zubair. this is um abdullah ibn Zubair. we're just going to call him ibn Zubair. now they saw hussein ibn ali and ibn zubayr they saw what Ma'ali was doing they saw that he was trying to basically turn his family the banu Umayyah, his clan into a dynasty they could see that and they were absolutely against it they wanted to Go back to the shura, which they felt was closer to the model of, if not Prophet Muhammad, wasalam, at least the model of the original righteous caliphs, the four righteous caliphs. And I'm not sure if Hussein felt that Uthman was a righteous caliph. He probably did. I don't think Hussein was against him like um, some of the uh, followers of his father were. But anyway, Hussein and Ibn Zubair they weren't really pulling for... This whole king thing that Muawiyah wanted, and these are two high-profile figures. And even though you can probably say that Hussein was more high-profile than Ibn Zubair, because Hussein ibn Ali was, after all, the Prophet's grandson, it's pretty high-profile there. Whereas Ibn Zubair was the Prophet's nephew by marriage, so he wasn't quite as prominent. But uh, there's two differences between the two of them. However, that regardless of how pro, how high-profile they were it made a difference in their impact upon Muslim history. Hussein Ibn Ali, his power base was in Iraq and Hussein Ibn Ali was living in Medina. So he was hundreds of miles from where his power was. Whereas Ibn Zubair, his power base was in Medina and Mecca, basically in the Arabian Peninsula. And he happened to be living there. And so, for Ibn Zubair, he had his power base much closer at hand than Hussein ibn Ali, and in the coming episodes, you will see how that will have a very big impact on their reaction to Muawiyah trying to establish a monarchy, and so to speak. Anyway, these two men, Hussein ibn Ali and Ibn Zubair, will play very big roles in the future. Inshallah, coming up very soon. So, with that, I just want to give you a few um, final notes before we wrap up. There's, of course, the Muslim podcast of the week. And th- for this week, it will be Islam for Life with Sheikh Waleed Mossad. Uh, I've listened to a few seconds of it, a few minutes of it. It's a, it sounds seems to be a very good show. Uh, it gets practical and inspirational advices, according to the website, Practical and inspirational advice on how to improve your life with Islamic principles. That last part is my part. But anyway, it's a, it's a pretty good show. I, I liked it, and uh, and I think you will like it too. Inshallah, go ahead and you, you'll hear a short clip after this um, in a few minutes, really. And hopefully, if you like it, go ahead and subscribe. And uh, there's no harm in that, and you may find that it's very beneficial. So finally, I want to remind you that this show is 100% listener supported, 100% and plus my my wallet. But if, if you can help to defray the costs, make this easier uh, for me, help me buy better equipment and all the many things I like to do with this show, make it better for you. Please consider making a pledge on Patreon.com. Go to Patreon.com slash Islamic History. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N go there and make a pledge. You can make a pledge as low as uh, $1 and as high as, you know, there's no limit to how high you want to make it. But I think $30 is the maximum. But please, inshallah, consider making a pledge, a pledge and um, hopefully make this show easier for me to produce. Show notes for this episode will be available at com slash North Africa. Yes, North Africa, one word. islamiclearningmaterials.com slash North Africa. When you get there, you can do many things on the show notes, things such as get links to the Muslim podcast of the week. You can see some of the related episodes and articles to this episode. You can see the, a transcript for this, epi- for this episode. And of course, you can support the show through Patreon and other means. So, inshallah, go check that out. IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash NorthAfrica. Patreon.com slash History. Visit those links, help out the show. May Allah reward you. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
1: Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Seekers Hub podcast,
0: a regular offering of inspiring and relevant sacred knowledge. Please visit us at www.seekershub.org for more information on our online academy, reliable answers service, and engaging media.
1: So then finally, we get to the last uh, parable in the Quran. Talking about ذِلْقَرْنَيْن وَيَسْئِلُنَكَ They ask you concerning of ذِلْقَرْنَيْنَ Say I shall recite you remembrance of him. So ذِلْقَرْنَيْنَ was someone who was given power and sulta and he presided east and west. So that caused many of the ulamat to conclude there was no person in history who was actually able to do that if indeed it was a man except for someone like Alexander the Great especially during this time before the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, and, uh, you know, in the early days. So, again, uh, it's not a, uh, not a tenant of faith that it was Alexander the Great. We just know that he's referred to as Dhul Qarnayn in the Qur'an. Why he was called that, there's different reasons. Al Qarn actually means horn. One of them said that, one narration is that he had two forelocks or braids of hair that look like two horns, sort of, and so that's why they call him the Qarnayn. Some say that when he goes between east and west, there was symbolically one in the east and one in the west. You know, whatever the case may be, but um, this is what the Qur'an uh, refers to him as. And most of the narrations say that he was not a prophet, even though some mention he could have been. He was a good man, a good person either way, and he was more like uh, a king than a prophet in that sense. Or he could have been a king prophet in much the same way that Suleiman was. Another opinion. But again, it's the moral of the story that we're looking at rather than the details of it.